dark side. Light this bitch up. up everybody my name is james d fiore and this is black ball we had a strange day today um the day started with uh, a cancellation of probably the most controversial guest i've ever had on this show i uh, was supposed to have a german member of european parliament christine anderson and she canceled uh this morning which is fine because my guest today let me check let me check i just want to make sure that this is correct yes it took 33 emails <laughs> to book my guest today because he is clearly the big, the busiest man in Canada. But as luck would have it, I was like, hey, shot in the dark. Are you available today? And he was. He's also, I'm going to point out, the author of a new book about one of our former prime ministers, John Turner. It's an intimate biography of Canada's 17th prime minister. Please welcome to the show our guest today. And his name is Steve. Pakin. Steve, how are you, buddy? Your viewers and listeners must be so disappointed. I bet they were really looking forward to having that German politician on. You know what's really funny is that, um, no, I think most of my viewers are happy that I didn't. I, I've been in this weird space in the last couple of years where I, I, I have a principle that I would interview basically anybody. And, and it's because I remember when people used to interview um, Akman Adinejad or even Osama bin Laden. And no one accused anyone of platforming. So my motivation to have her back on the show, because I've had her before, was just a thumb in the eye of the people that like accuse me of platforming. I just maybe I'll start off with this. Have you ever said, nah, I'm not gonna interview that person? Or or are you pretty much open to whoever I don't know if you provide I don't know if you ever do any show running yourself or if it's all handed to you, but uh, okay, so let's make that distinction off the top. The the shows that the producers here produce for the agenda, they pick the guests. The shows that I produce, and as it happens, uh, one of those programs that I produce is on tonight, then I do get to pick the guests. But everybody uh, has to have their guests approved by the executive producer. So okay. nobody here has the power to unilaterally put somebody on. The exec producer has to sign off on it. And I can't think of any example where an elected person and the person you were going to interview has been elected, right? Yep. Yeah, she's a member of the European Parliament. Yeah. So um, I, I can't think of a single example where somebody who had been elected and who had been and who had agreed to come on our program was subsequently told by the boss, "Sorry, can't have you on." Yeah. Is there a principle? Like, I mean, is this is this a new age? You think where younger journalists are just more more likely to sort of insert their emotional perspectives onto a guest? Short answer, yes. I think that's the case. I know that when I was coming up through journalism school, and admittedly we're going back to the dark ages now, uh, we were told, you know, that's keep your... That's the 70s for everyone keeping track at home. <laughs> Actually, believe it or not, it was the 80s, but when oh, okay. I was in journalism school, not quite that far back. All right. uh, we were certainly told, keep your own opinions out of it. Uh, your, your job is to is to be fair and open and allow representation from all competing points of views. And I don't I don't know how much of that uh, still goes on nowadays, which what's, you know, at the, at the risk of turning the tables on you, because you're from a generation closer to the 20 somethings that uh, that are now getting the jobs in journalism. It certainly seems as if they are allowing their own particular opinions 
to affect who they will or won't talk to. Yep, I, I think you nailed it. I, I think, um, you know, the and the media, the, the legacy media here doesn't really help. You know, the, when, when, you know, a, a mainstream outlet uh, refers to, uh, you know, an elected member of European Parliament as, as a Nazi, and keep in mind, she, she, she's like the Max Bernier, I guess, of the European Parliament, right? Like, it's just, you know, and except she's elected. Um, but the, the idea that, um, I, I guess if you're a libertarian these days, because the way the spectrum has moved and shifted. And there's people that are in the middle kind of dancing on this wire now because we're not shifting with the shift. Mm. And so I think, uh, yeah, I, I think younger people, they have a different view of journalism too. Like, I think Glenn, it was Glenn Greenwald, I think, when he broke the Snowden story. And he was accused by Fox News and other outlets of being an activist. Mm. And he said something that I actually thought was disappointing, and it still might be true, he, he said that if a, if a journalist tells you that they're not an activist of some sort, then they're lying to you. Yeah, I don't buy that. I, yeah. I, I'm sorry. But then again, you know, I'm old school about these things. Uh, you know, uh, do I have a bias? Yes, I have a bias for I have a bias for intelligence over stupidity. I have a bias for empirically proved facts as opposed to people making stuff up. I have a bias for people who are prepared to come to a set and conduct themselves in a civilized way and not want to have a food fight over every little issue. That's where my bias is, but that's not the kind of bias Greenwald's talking about. I don't think. No, it's not. It's not. And and you know what? I'm I'm with you. I think I'm. Uh, Christy Blatchford once told me. I may have mentioned this the last time you were on, even, but um, uh, she was my neighbor for a decade or so. And uh, I used to see her all the time, and she used to tell me, she's like, James, you were born two decades too late. She's like, <laughs> she's like, you're too, you're too like pro. She was the greatest. She was amazing. She like, was the greatest. Yeah, I miss her a lot. I miss her voice right now too, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, she wouldn't. Um, she, she. I mean, she. This climate existed when she passed away, and she wasn't having any part of it. Yeah. You know? I mean, the thing you had to. I didn't know her all that well. She'd been a guest on our program a number of times, uh, mostly over books that she wrote. Mm. Uh, but I remember meeting her. I think the first time I met her was during a, was it the 2004 election campaign? I can't remember now. We were both out just on the hustings covering something. We both ended up at the same event. And of course, I knew who she was. And and I thought, she's too scary for me to approach and introduce myself to. So I didn't. And so she came up to me. Oh. And she just started a conversation with me in a very mild-mannered, lovely way. And and I was kind of taken aback that here's this legendary columnist deigning to spend some time. This is you know, probably 20 years ago, deigning to spend some time with me here on the Hustings. And it was it was beautiful. And we we became, I won't say we became great friends after that, but we came became friendly. And I always admired her fearlessness and her willingness to, you know. Poke, poke at a, a thumb in the eye of authority and that kind of thing. Yeah, it was an interesting juxtaposition that her public persona was really ill perceived by a lot of people because her private persona, or at least the neighbor that I knew, was so nice and thoughtful and generous. She didn't want to talk about herself ever. She wanted to yeah. talk about you. Yeah. And it made people feel really comfortable. I miss yeah, her. She yeah, she was great. Yeah. Um, let, I want to talk about your book first because um you're you're like i know i don't mean this in a bad way you're the steve pakin of canada but you're also almost like a john meacham now right because you keep you keep on writing about these political figures you wrote john turner the uh, intimate biography of canada's 17th prime minister 
He was also prime minister for a very short time. Yes. What kind of importance did he play, though, when he uh, before, during and after he became prime minister? Well, that's the key. And that's why I wrote the book, because when he died, which we're going back now, September 19th, 2020, the headline in the Globe and Mail was something like John Turner, prime minister for 11 weeks, dies at age 91. And I know a lot of people who knew him found that a very, very unfortunate headline. They just didn't like it. They made it seem like the most important thing in his life was the fact that he's the second shortest serving prime minister of all time. And in fact, I think one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is because the contributions he made to Canada as justice minister in the 1960s, as finance minister in the 1970s, as leader of the opposition in the 1980s, as as perhaps this country's greatest ever champion for democracy thereafter and going all over the country and giving speeches to promote democracy and political engagement in the next generations down you know that's that's the stuff people need to know about and uh, i mean this is this is a guy who into his late 80s is going into high schools and colleges and universities and telling people democracy doesn't happen by accident you've got to participate and oh my gosh is that an important message nowadays when we see that the younger generation, and by that I mean, I guess anybody under 30 or 35, they don't vote. So this is Turner saying, you know, the word parliament comes from parler en français, the Norman word for debate, speaking. So that's that's the voice I wanted to capture in the book. Is, was there a, um, a quiet sort of unfairness among the media behind the scenes who seemed to have a weird uh, fascination with John Turner's demons, if I may put it like that. Well, let's put it this way. He, he re I mean, he was in public life until 1975, and then he had a sort of rather famous falling out with the current prime minister's father, and he resigned, which, I mean, try and imagine how shocking that would be. What if Christian Freeland resigned from the cabinet today, resigned from politics, just like one day came out of 24 Sussex, or I guess in this case, Rideau Cottage, came out and said to the media waiting outside, I've decided to quit public life. I mean, it would it would shake the government to its core. And that's what happened in 1975 with John Turner. Uh, he, he just decided uh, because of a policy dispute with the prime minister of the day to quit. And so he went into the private sector for a decade. And when he came back out to retake, or I guess reassume uh, a role in public leadership by becoming the liberal leader in 1984, uh, a lot of the people who covered him and a lot of the people who followed politics at that time didn't know him because he'd been away a long time. So when you say, was there sort of a, a latent unfairness among members of the media at that time in his cover, in the coverage of his return? Well, maybe among some, but I think a lot of it was just they didn't know the guy and they'd spent the last 10 years hearing about this fair haired knight in waiting who was waiting to come back and save the Liberal Party. And then when he did come back, he just wasn't what was advertised and that was the problem can you bring some of us back to what happened that made him an 11-week prime minister sure um when he came back in 1984 liberals you know i think this is fair to say the liberal party loves you win or tie they don't love you if you lose That's right. and and this is a party who's you know many times through history whose governing principles are we, we need to win we win we win we stay in power and we worry about figuring out what our coalition is and the cleavages and how to figure them out uh, while we're in power. And they thought Turner would do that. They thought all, all of the talk over the previous 10 years that he was in the private sector as a lawyer and corporate director, 
they thought this great looking guy i mean you showed the cover of the book this guy had movie star good looks yeah he really did just an incredibly good look his wife took that picture i love that picture um they just thought this guy will will keep us in power and remember when pierre trudeau left in 1984 the liberal party was in last place in the polls they were despised by so much of the country and they were looking for a savior to get them back in so turner comes Back into public life, he wins the leadership in 1984 on the second ballot very easily over Jean Chrétien. But very quickly, it becomes apparent he's rusty on issues. He's rusty on French. He dresses as if he's from a different decade in the past. He's kind of not. He's not tournament tough, as the expression goes. And and people became aware of that. And and he he just was not ready for prime time. And he 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 misread the polls which said that the Liberal Party was back in first place in popular, and as a result, called a snap election. And through the course of that campaign, the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, a guy named Brian Mulroney, absolutely took him to the woodshed, and the Tories won the biggest majority in Canadian history, and Turner led the Liberals to their worst showing ever at that time. Yeah, at that time. There was a yeah. few <laughs> a few. There was one later. worse since yeah. then, yes. That's right. He, uh, he was he was a really interesting guy. I used to run into him all the time because uh, my friend worked as a server at the restaurant that he used to go to eat breakfast for literally two decades. Right. Which re- which restaurant was this? I don't remember the name of it, but she used to tell me. Um, uh, Is this Brown's you know, Bistro on Young Street? I think so. Yeah. I he think, loved uh, that. Just yeah. south of St. Clair. He loved that That's right. place. That's right. So she worked there and she used to serve him and she used to be like. Well, I've never seen anyone have uh, that stiff of a drink at 10 a.m. <laughs> and that yeah. was kind of what I meant, because yeah. I've, I've, I've been a person who suffered from demons um, in my life. And so, you know, and, and I'm not holding that against him or, or trying to, um, you know, throw shade on a, on a person who's passed away. Mm. But but that's sort of what I meant when because uh, whenever I talk to a reporter about John Turner, that's the first thing that they would say. And well, it look, it's sad for him, you know, like, uh, there's no question. John Turner came from he's born in 1929, James. Yeah. So he comes from a generation where people lived hard. They partied hard. They drank hard. I mean, that's you'd have a two martini luncheon. You'd come home and have a nightcap and you go out in the evening. You'd have I mean, alcohol was just a huge part of uh, of people's lives back then. Almost universally. I say almost because I wrote a book about another guy named Bill Davis, who was premier of Ontario who might have had that much alcohol in his whole life. Right. So, but Mr. Turner was reflective of the era in which he was born and raised. And and that's just what they did. They drank a lot. Now, I, I talked to lots of people about him for this book, and I talked to nobody who who said you know, they they ever saw him I think the Looking expression inebriated. would be yeah. like piss tank drunk. No one saw him like that. Did that's they good. think he drank too much? Absolutely. And, you know, we can talk about the reasons for that. He had a lot of stuff going on in his life that might have required some alcohol to medicate him. Um, including well, he was a part of the Liberal pain. Party in the 80s. I mean. <laughs> well, that might have been part of it, but the drinking started before that. No, he was he suffered from horrendous back pain for much of his life. And I have no doubt that a lot of the alcohol intake was to was to dull the pain of all of that. And in fact, in the 1988 debate and Brian Mulroney talks about this in his in his book, he walked into the television station in Ottawa for that 88 election debate looking absolutely horrible. And and Mr. Mulrooney talks in his book about how much sympathy he had for this. I think he called him a, like a gallant warrior, a gallant knight preparing to show up to battle uh, just in agony because his back was acting up again. And um, and yet he Mr. Turner won that debate and nearly won that election. 
Yeah, um, someone described him to me once as um, as as like beyond functional. Like Christopher Hitchens could polish like a you know a forty ouncer of Johnny Walker Black and still cite you know Tolsky or whoever he needs to cite right know, because he had that kind of recall. Um, aside from the fact that he was rusty on the issues, he was similar to that, wasn't he? Absolutely, and it's funny. One of the things that um, that I managed to get access to to write this book were his private papers in Library and Archives Canada in Ottawa, wow. and I spent a lot of time in there. And I found one file that I was of particular interest. There was a file called the Drinking Issue, and these were all confidential memos sent among his staff to each other, saying, "How do we handle this?" And whether it was a speech he was about to give at the parliamentary press gallery dinner or, you know, interviews where he might be asked about this, they strategized on how to handle the drinking issue. And and I know, for example, like he had a bunch of jokes written for a parliamentary press gallery dinner that were going to be very self-deprecating on the issue of drinking. And his staff saw the jokes and, you know, I see the memos going back and forth and they ultimately say, no. This one's t it's it's too much. He can't you tell him he can't tell him he can't tell this joke. It's too much That's a mistake. So yeah. they yeah, they they knew it was an issue. Yeah, I would have advised. I, I think that would have been a perfect way to handle it because all the people in that Ottawa bubble kind of knew that anyways. Well, it would have been the right crowd. Yeah, right. For sure. That joke. Um, well, congratulations on the book. How long has it been out now? And, and it's a bestseller, I'm sure. Right. It's uh, I couldn't tell you about that, but it's uh, it's been out for a few months right now. And. Uh, I have to say I'm loving the reaction. I gave a speech last night at the Arts and Letters Club in uh, downtown Toronto about it. And, you know, that's a crowd of people who are mostly in their sort of 60s, 70s and 80s. I think one gentleman was in his 90s. And it's a crowd that, that had firsthand memories of John Turner and knew him well. And therefore, I was sort of it's like having a conversation among friends, among people who who knew him and um and loved him in spite of his limitations, because he had limitations, obviously. I mean, he lost two elections, and and his limitations were a factor in why he lost those elections. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations again. Once again, the name of the book is John Turner, an intimate biography of Canada's 17th Prime Minister. Okay, I want to move on to something sure. um, that happened uh, just over a week ago. Um, and I saw this in my inbox, and you wrote... Uh, my dinner with Gordon Lightfoot. I went to a gala to help raise money for arts and culture in Toronto. I ended up having an unforgettable evening with a music legend. I'm just going to read an excerpt from that, if you don't mind. Please. Um, <clears throat> I'm just going to get rid of my logo here so I can see. Uh, who are you talking about? Shaw, when you say Shaw. That's Ken Shaw, the former CTV news anchor. Okay, so Shaw decided to have some fun at my expense. You guys are at an event. It's like an auction. He's uh, he a, got... Yeah, he's the auctioneer. That's right. He Did he talk like one? <laughs> yes, he did. Wow, he knows how to do that. <laughs> yeah, he was good. He got the bidding off to a strong start by picking me out of the audience and saying, hey, I see my friend Steve Pakin in the audience. Steve, how'd you like to start the bidding at 1,000? First of all, dick move, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. He's a buddy of mine. It's okay. Being the good sport I am, I raised my paddle and nodded, secure in the knowledge that someone else would outbid me. And someone did. Phew. Then Shaw paused the bidding. Here's an additional surprise for the winning bidder, he said. There will be a surprise guest at the dinner. The surprise guest is Gordon Lightfoot. This part I find amazing. Well, that changed everything. I now had a big problem, <clears throat> excuse me, because sitting at my table was none other than Gordon Lightfoot with his wife, Kim. I knew Lightfoot a little bit since I'd previously met him in an intimate concert. I'd actually asked him to autograph an old LP vinyl record of his. I was totally caught off guard when he actually recognized me and complimented me on my work on the agenda. Gordon Lightfoot knows who I am. How fabulously crazy is that? 
take us through what happened next because I read your piece and I was just I was imagining myself with whoever I really loved. And and first of all, just the fact that he was at your table during the auction would have been enough for me. And then give it give us give us the rest of the story here. Well, I mean, you hit it on the head right there. I needed Gordon Lightfoot to know how much I loved him. <laughs> and I did love him. And my wife and I, we both play his music at our, at our cottage all the time and and on LP, right, on the old records that we have of his that we've had since we were kids. And my mission at that moment was to convince Gordon Lightfoot that I loved him more than anybody else in the room. And somebody on the far, this was a big gala dinner, I don't know, 700 people there. And, you know, I couldn't see who was bidding, but there was somebody else on the far side of the room. And so once I found out Gordon Lightfoot's going to be the guest at this dinner, okay, here we go. 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. My wife is starting to elbow me, but I'm ignoring her because Gordon Lightfoot's sitting right across from me and I got to prove how much I love him. I finally get, numbers are getting up there. I finally say to the person sitting on my left, I say, look, you love him too. Come in on this with me. We'll go halvesies on this. So, okay, the bidding's at 7,000, so that's only 3,500 to me at the moment, so it's a little more palatable. I don't have it, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> Anyways, we keep going. We keep going, and I think ultimately the thing sold for thirteen or $14,000. Wow. And I thought to myself, first thing I thought to myself was, now Gordon knows how much I love him. So this is great. <laughs> Second thing. Even though, did he know you went halfsies? <laughs> uh, I don't think he did actually at that <laughs> okay, point. Good, good. Uh, okay, then my wife stares daggers at me and says to me, what in the hell have you done here? We have a cottage roof that needs replacing. I have a mother who's in long, you know, who, who who's ailing and needs constant medical home care and attention. We don't have the money for this. What are you, what did you, what, like, oh my, I was truly on the thinnest ice you can imagine, James. Oh, I know that ice. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just said to her in a moment of bravado, having no clue how I would make good on this, I just said to her, don't worry, I will fix this. And that's all I said. I didn't know what the heck I had in I mind. I meant the roof, I'd... honey. I meant the roof. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I didn't know what I had in mind. But a week and a half later, I'm at a hockey game with my brother and a couple of his buddies. And I mentioned to him that I spent this kind of crazy amount on dinner with Gordon Lightfoot. And, you know, he's going to come to my house and he's going to, uh, some Toronto chef is going to prepare an eight course meal and it's going to be fantastic. But, oh my goodness, I kind of went crazy and I don't really, uh, I can't really afford this, but there we are. And one guy, and then I jokingly just, I, I don't know where it came from. I just jokingly said, hey, how about, uh, would you guys pay admission to come have dinner with Gordon Lightfoot? And one guy at the table said, done, I'm in. And then the next guy at the table said, and I'll host it at my place. Oh, wow. And suddenly we got a situation where a bunch of guys are prepared to put in some money to help defray my costs. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I had the most unforgettable dinner of my life with Gordon Lightfoot and his wife. My daughter was there. My wife was there. My brother and his wife and a bunch of his buddies and their wives. And the whole thing cost me zero get out zero wow that ice thickened up didn't it <laughs> it, it, it I, I saved the day i saved the day my brother saved the day let me rephrase yeah I but am. anyway but i told my wife i'll fix this and thank goodness it got fixed and we're still married so yeah. it's beautiful happy ending <laughs> um the dinner itself 
uh, what, you know, you, you described it, and I'm I'm just going by memory. I didn't take any other uh, excerpts, but um, you know, like he's he's a he was a low talker, but a really fluid storyteller. Right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I, I and I mean, we all know what Gordon. This dinner happened. Oh gosh, when was it? I mean, is it five, six years ago or something? So we all remember that Gordon was, um, you know, uh, fragile, gaunt, like he wasn't as we remember him, you know, 30, 40 years ago and spoke rather quietly. And as a result, I sort of had an informal rule at the table, one conversation, we're not going to make him compete with a bunch of other people talking at the same time. And so that's what we did. And I just said, welcomed everybody. And I said, so Gordon, it all started in Aurelia, Ontario. Yeah. Fire away. And he just started telling stories. And we all listened. We just wrapped with attention. We all listened. And, um, you know, it was, James, it was glorious. It was just yeah. a glorious night. And he was in an expansive mood. And we just asked him, you know, all kinds of questions about everything you can imagine. And he answered everything. And it was lovely. I loved how he still had that, that thing that artists have where, I mean, he went out to his to get his guitar so that he could play a song for you and i love it at his age i don't know how old it was at the time 80 maybe or something like uh, that. maybe a little less probably high uh, 78 i'm gonna say okay so he was 78 years old and he still was like i'm gonna go get my guitar come in and play something i mean it could have been because he was tired of talking to you guys but like <laughs> you know but to know but to feel that kind of because through your words i sort of like just imagined that um he was still he still loved to just sing for people like it, it, it's not something that faded this was the beautiful thing about it nobody asked him to do it he just said at one point you know i think it's after dessert and he just said at one point well um hey if you guys don't mind um like i'll go to my car and get my guitar and come in and play you something if you like yeah. <laughs> if we like uh sure uh, no, no nobody objects do do we anybody in the room object to gordon going to get his guitar and coming back in and playing us a song which he did and you know it was it was i mean you could have heard a pin drop it was just magnificent well he was also one of those musicians that um was so respected by other big names right like yes. he wrote so many songs uh songs that were played by bob dylan and i think george harrison um you know a bunch of other ones and you know like and he's Canadian. I don't know. I, I always get a, a a good warm spot in my gullet for uh, Canadians that um, that are uh, praised by American and British songwriters. I don't know why. I don't know if it's an inferiority. No, that, of course complex. it is. It's 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 all of the above. Yeah, for sure. And I'll tell you, um, I'm not sure. I can't really, off the top of my head, think of a lovelier moment in my life than being up at my camp, as we call it, and in uh, Manitoulin Island. They don't call them cottages there. They call them camps. Yeah. Sitting on my deck at my camp with my family, putting on a Gordon Lightfoot record, maybe the Canadian Railway Trilogy, which was one of my favorite songs of his, and just looking out at the North Channel of Lake Huron and seeing just, I mean, seeing this country in its most splendid beauty and having that voice of Canadiana come on singing about there was a time in this fair land when the railroad did not run and hmm. i mean that's just pure nostalgia yeah it's a moment it's just a it's it's a just a and i can't wait to do it this summer now that he's died and it will be i mean just so much more impactful right it'll just it'll absolutely hit me right in the gut you know when you're talking right now and i know you got to go soon so we'll wrap soon but um the 
the the thing that came to my mind was another Gordon it was Gord Downey. You know, yeah, that, that my that was I guess my generation's cottage music, but it was the same thing. You know, I get anytime you heard the loon in the beginning of Wheat Kings, and you're sitting on the dock having a beer with your friends. Mm. Now Downey I isn't mean, quite my generation. Lightfoot is. Right, so, I know that. Yeah, that's why yeah. I said my generation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Respected Gord Downey, but he, he, you know, he didn't play the soundtrack of my childhood, right? The that's Gord, right. But, 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 that, but what I'm saying is that they both had the same side of impact on different generations. And uh, so I, I, I can connect with what you're saying there. But um, a big loss, but he had a great life, right? Like it's, it's one, of those, uh, one of those great Canadian stories. And, uh, and I'm glad you got to tell it in such a nice way. Like it's, it, I know that people, writers especially, are often um, sometimes hesitant to share stories of the recently departed because they don't want it to seem like it's about them. Yes. And I think that you did that perfectly. Um, you know, you were humble about it. And, uh, and uh, you know, is a really beautiful tribute. So thank you for sharing that with all of us. Well, thank you for saying so. I, I remember when that night was over. I, I mean, we were all just, <laughs> we were so... Uh, uh, I was going to say hi, but I don't want you to misinterpret that. We were just high on the moment. Right. And, and I got home, and I couldn't sleep, and I just, I, I, I just started writing. This is six years ago when we had the dinner, and I just started writing. And I wrote out, you know, basically, here's what happened that night. So I, and I kept that, and I just I put it in my, I don't know why, I just, uh, you know, did it. And I had it somewhere in my computer. And after Gordon died, I just thought to myself, I wonder if anybody would be interested in this experience. And I talked to the editor who edits the website and I let him know what I had. And, and he said, uh, yeah, by all means, yeah, do that. And of course, at the, at the end of the day, you only ultimately know whether it was a good idea or a dumb idea based on the feedback you get. And, 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 and I, I mean, this would have been one of the columns that I've written that had, you know, it, it would have been in the top five for feedback of all time. Because people just wanted to share their Gordon experiences with me, given that I had shared mine with them, and That's it was the way so. You know, you did it the right way. Well, yeah. yeah, that and they and it just the emails kept coming. I'm still getting them even today. This is a week after the, the column ran, and and um, yeah, people people want to connect over these kinds of things, and everybody, so many people had a wonderful Gordon Lightfoot story about how he touched them or their encounter with him or when he was nice to. Anyway, it was so. I'm glad I did it. Yeah, I'm glad you did too. Listen, we had lunch once. When you die, I'll write about it, okay? <laughs> Hopefully you won't have to write that column for a while. No, I'm sure it won't be for at least another five, six years or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Hopefully you can do a little better than that. It'll be a lot longer than that, I'm sure. Okay, I'll probably good. kick the bucket before you do, Steve. Let's be honest <laughs> Steve Taken, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. Not at all. It's always good to talk to you, and you are you are tons of fun. You always are when we get together, so I well, thank thanks, you. thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Right on. All right, you have a good one. See Steve Pakin, everybody. I love talking to him. Steve Pakin is one of those. Uh, he's probably the best political debate moderator, along with all of his other accomplishments, uh, being at TVO's The Agenda and just having like a, a career that spans like three plus decades that he he also has this skill of moderating political debates. And so um, I always love having him on the show. I think he's one of the one of the great. I think he's like a Canadian gem personally. Uh, okay, today is actually a blackball doubleheader. Um, later on today, and I can't fucking wait for this interview, I am going to have, his name is Rob Freeman, and he is the director of a documentary that I watched, I guess, five days ago or so. 
The documentary is called Drop the Needle. And it is a documentary about Canada, or I would say Canada's, but at least Toronto's most famous record store called Play to Record and its beginnings. It is a nostalgia film if you were into hip-hop, electronic music, or reggae. Like, really into it. Back in, like, the late 80s to early 90s. Um, you know, up until, you know, just like a few years ago. There... I don't even know how to explain it in the in a way that would make people that weren't really in in certain scenes understand. But, and I by the way wasn't a DJ. I was an MC, and uh, we used to go anytime we went to Toronto. We would make a stop and play the record. In fact, we would go from Whitby to Union Station, and then take the subway up uh, to Dundas or to probably to Bloor, and then walk back down just so we could go to play the record. And we'd only hit Young Street on the east side of the street because the west side was for tourists. <laughs> That's what we did. But this record store, um, and and it, to, to put yourself there, just, just for a second, um, maybe I'm wasting the intro that I'm going to say later, but who cares? The putting yourself into um, a space where you wanted to consume something like hip-hop music in the early 90s, it wasn't easy. We often had to send away, um, you know, uh, to New York, um, you know, our orders that then would have to be shipped to us. And that got to be really expensive and we didn't get anything at wholesale. So we would have to rely on people or on stores like Play to Record in order to bring that stuff into us. And the same for cassettes. So that was like one of the very few places where I could consume hip hop when I was a youngster. The only other places were like college radio. And I would live, lived in Whitby and CKLN 88.1 didn't exactly have the strongest signal. So I'd have to put like tinfoil on my on my antenna for my ghetto blaster <clears throat> that might be a racist term now for all i know but it, it's not to me um i would have to put tinfoil on the antenna just to get my hip-hop fill once a week um you know on the on the power move show with djx who's another guest i'm gonna have uh, a little bit later this month as well so i'm really uh really excited his name's rob freeman by the way so he's gonna be on tonight at eight o'clock tomorrow um i have james connell on james connell is a human rights attorney and he will be actually at Gitmo during the podcast. I am told that I am the only podcaster. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but he seems to think it's true. The only podcaster who actually um, is is doing a show where my guest is in Gitmo. So this is going to be pretty crazy. So I can't wait for that. We got Casual Friday on Friday. I don't have uh, a guest book yet on Thursday. I'm trying to finalize. So when I do finalize that... You all will be the first to know. Um, but we'll see you tonight at 8 o'clock. And until then, we'll see you next time on Black Ball. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating. 
and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback.